Europe's medicines regulator has approved the continued use of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. A UK news publisher tells its journalists to work from home for the foreseeable and we're regaled with our regular Friday dispatch from our unusual soul of a correspondent in New York. Monocle's contributors tackle these topics and more on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 19th of March and I'm Josh Bennett. Joining me today here in Studio One at Midori House at a safe distance of course in London are Monocle 24's Tom Edwards and Carlotta Ribello. Tom and Carlotta, welcome back to the show. Tom, I'm going to start with you. It's been a big week. We've sent Confect magazine. Doesn't really touch you. Uh, we've done loads of stuff for the magazine online. Not really your bag. And uh, the radio, I gather, has still been publishing... It's uh, fine work. Are you looking forward to a nice hot bath, a nice cool glass of wine? That's how I imagine you spend your weekends. I have been busting a gut and need to take a load off. Um, I should say about Confect, uh, production continues on Confect Corner, the podcast. That'll be appearing next week, Josh. So uh, we, we have our finger in all the same pies, you know. Are you allowed to, are you allowed to say who's going to be a guest or, or trail it a little bit ahead? Because I know it's not, not out until maybe the beginning of April, so it could be, could be a bit of a vague... Well, I think push. people should, of course, head for confectmagazine.com keep across it it'll be here this time next week Josh so uh, tune in don't let me spoil it Keep build up the anticipation that's what we want very exciting didn't hear about your bubble bath but we'll have to wait for another show for that Carlotta you've got your nose to the grindstone covering uh, the news all week I wonder if you take a little bit of a break at the weekend, if you turn off those notifications and turn to a trashy novel or some kind of guilty pleasure. Um, no, Josh, actually not. This weekend I'll be here at Midori House uh, working uh, with our editorial director, Tyler Brule, across Monocle on Sunday, uh, which, as usual, is broadcast from Zurich. So that'll be really nice. And instead of trashy novels, uh, when I try to turn off uh, the notifications and everything else, I'm reading through the classics uh, at the moment. Go on. Uh, because... Obviously, not being a native English speaker, I read most of them uh, not in English but in the translation. So now I'm trying to go back to reading it in the original language. And the one that I have on my nightstand now is To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, Harper Lee. Exactly. Tom, you love a bit of To Kill a Mockingbird, don't you? I think that's an absolute... It's a GCSE prerequisite, isn't it? To Kill a Mockingbird. It is, because that's where I'm basing my list off. I have the list of what's mandatory in high school in this country, and I'm ticking them along in English. There you go. Well, that's pre- to be fair, that's pretty good. I think you can't really go wrong with that. What's next? After the, you've polished that one off. Uh, I don't know. Before this was Of Mice and Men, obviously. Oh, these, are, these are really yeah. taking me back. And to... read that, like, literally in one day. <laughs> but it was really great. Uh, and then we'll see what comes next. I'll update you next week. I love that. I love that. That's also good to get a bit um, ambitious about your cultural intake at the weekends. And there's me accusing you of uh, getting in the bubble bath with Tom and reading a trashy novel. Wasn't the case. Wasn't the case. Wouldn't have been appropriate. (laughs) We are going to start today, though, with a look at the latest on COVID-19, if you've heard of that. Many EU nations, including France, Germany and Italy, are resuming their rollout of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine today after the bloc's medicines regulator, the EMA, agreed that the jab was both safe and effective. A full 20 member states had paused the use of the vaccine over unfounded claims that it caused blood clots. And that's just the latest bump in the road for the British-Swedish development. Jab. Earlier, we heard from Monocle's health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith, on the briefing. Take it away, Chris. I think what the EU and the European nations as a whole are very effectively doing is turning a very effective shot into the arm, into a shot in the foot, the way it's all gone. And, and it's a real shame. And 
as a result of what's gone on, I think that they are going to see serious consequences. They already are, but they are going to see serious consequences, and not just in their countries, but in other countries around the world, because unfortunately that there has been reputational damage to the AstraZeneca vaccine. We are seeing in the UK a downtick of about 10% in people attending for vaccination and pre-booked vaccination appointments of specifically that vaccine, and in line with these headlines appearing. So it appears that there's been an overreaction, perhaps an incautious overreaction, which has thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Monocle's health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith, there speaking a little earlier on the briefing on Monocle 24. Tom, very depressing that Dr Chris Smith is both an eminent scientist, an excellent broadcaster, and appears to have a really good way of knitting together these topics in a way that people understand. He's come back to bathwater at the end of the quote, even to to bring it full circle. Love the pun on shot. Um, I want to ask you, though, about the vaccine. Is this a political crisis or is there some underlying problem with the vaccine? Is the reason that people are finding fault with it? You know, some of the bumps and bruises and PR tumbles that the generation of this British-Swedish product has yielded. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a political element to it. We we mustn't forget that the underlying cause of this problem is the continuing spread of the pandemic, in particular across the European bloc. Uh, it's the prevalence of the, the, the new variants, which, of course, we have the, the Kentish variant that's pretty much sort of taken over in the UK. Now, we've been able to mitigate its worst effects um, with a couple of, by, by a couple of measures, some of which are sort of the serendipitous consequences of other things, and some of which have just been good science and a rare outbreak of good government. Um, One was a fast reaction uh, when that new variant spread was identified just pre-Christmas. And the second thing is obviously the corollary benefits of our very impressive vaccine rollout. You know, we're up now, I think, at like something like 50% of, of adults having received at least a single shot. One of the reasons that the European rollout is has 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 sort of founded at times is because of some politicking, um, and it was interesting in that discussion that we played a snippet of Chris a moment ago. Uh, Florian Egli in, in Zurich also alluded to this idea that there's other vested interests here, other big pharma players who have a much more expensive vaccine who may have had some interest in the slowdown of uptake of the much cheaper and more immediately accessible AstraZeneca. So there's all kinds of, frankly, rather depressing uh, factors. Uh, National interests before the bloc's common good, uh, potentially some uh, economic interests from some quarters. And also there has been this sort of spectre of of vaccine nationalism. Now, I would say that the stakes are simply too high now for governments, whether we're looking to Berlin or Paris or anywhere else, not to just look for the best outcomes for the most number of citizens right now. And I do think that's what's happening. But as Chris explained, it's not a fatal blow that's been served to the AstraZeneca vaccine and indeed the broader rollout, but it's done an immeasurable amount of damage. And there was an astonishing thing that Chris said about um, the impact in terms of predictable deaths that can flow from even a day of delay amongst certain demographics uh, in not getting their their vaccine. And when he couches it in those kinds of terms, it's just very stark and it's, it's very immediate. And it should, I hope, mean that we no longer have to even ask the question about playing politics with something this important. And Carlotta, do you think the EU has bungled this crisis and maybe, and very seriously, as Tom said, cost lives in the process by delaying the rollout and by casting aspersions on a jab that now appears to be broadly safe and highly effective? Um, Yes, I think like what we are uh, discovering 
the more data we have of the pandemic and as more time passes, is that any delays since from last year until now have unfortunately caused more deaths than those that were needed um, or were expected. Let me rephrase it that way in terms of the data that we have. Now, the EU was in a, EU leaders were in a very tough position because politically, if you see your neighbouring nations putting a vaccine on pause while the questions are raised, surely you'll get people asking you to do the same while those concerns are investigated. And if you don't do that, and then the answer is not what we've received now, that it's completely fine, you would be in a really tough situation. Um, So I don't think there would be a way to win there. Now, we've seen today quite some worrying statements coming out of Germany, for example, where the health minister said that at the moment, there are not enough vaccines in Europe to realistically stop another wave of COVID. Um, and that's where the rollout becomes really important to accelerate this. And I know the UK is in a completely different um, uh, rollout speed and efficacy than the rest of the European continent. Uh, but that's when it becomes really serious. You know, we've uh, spoken as well today about the fact that France is going back into a lockdown, Italy as well, particularly ahead of Easter and how a lot of people travel around that time. But, you know, the reality of another um, wave of coronavirus, another variant emerging is very much here. And only vaccination can stop that. Um, and it has to be through small let's say, I guess, political gestures, as, for example, today, the French Prime Minister Jean Castex uh, being photographed, taking his AstraZeneca jab, the first dose. It's small things like that that will change the public's perception because it was exactly through trusting the vaccine. It's going to be a slow process. I do hope um, that the statements we heard this week from the European Medicines Agency and the the UK's own regulator saying that the vaccine is safe will change uh, people's minds. Here's hoping. And old uh, Boris Johnson had his AstraZeneca jab today as well, further associating it with great science and uh, great (laughs) progress for humankind. Um, Next here on the late edition, we turn to the nexus of two things that we hold dear here at Monocle, the media industry and the importance of the office. UK publisher Reach, owner of many papers, including the Mirror and the Express, plus regional newspapers around the country, has announced its plans to shut offices in dozens of mid-sized towns and told its journalists to permanently work from home. This news comes on the back of proclamations by the Financial Times and publisher Condé Nast, which are also reticent about staff returning to the fray. Um, Carlotta, it's one thing to have a handful of members of staff working from home. We've walked a tightrope on this here at Monocle as well about how many people can be into broadcast, should be in to see off the final proofs of a book or a magazine. But to completely eliminate the office is surely just a veiled cost-cutting exercise uh, with with inherent dangers. What do you think? I completely agree. I don't... Uh, I. Other than a financial exercise, I don't see any other way this can be positive for a company. You know, the idea that they have presented here is that um, the offices in the smaller towns will be completely eliminated and staff will have to travel to the nearest major city where there's an office if they really require are required to work at a desk. Um, that is not the best solution in any industry, but let alone in journalism, when so much of our ideas, so many of our ideas and so much of our content comes from conversations in the office, comes from, you know, being able to brainstorm an idea that you had 
that might have been just a passing comment. The next thing you know, it's, you know, a double feature in a magazine or a newspaper. Uh, you need people around you. And it doesn't matter how many Zoom calls or phone calls you make. It's not the same as having your colleagues next to you. Then there's also concerns... Uh, in terms of what does this means for junior staff, because one thing is to have, you know, more experienced journalists um, who know exactly what they're doing, have some sort of gravitas, be at home doing their own thing. But what about if you just started in the industry? How are you going to learn if there's no one for you to shadow? Uh, how are you going to learn if you're not able to have those discussions in the office and sometimes just overhearing other people's discussions in the office? That is very important. And for me, that's one of the most dangerous things here is what it's going to do to future generations of journalists if other media publications decide to follow um, a suit. Tom, let's start. For better or worse, uh, newspapers and magazines and the media industry generally tends to be fairly hierarchical with people who have cut their teeth for many years, getting to know a beat, training up the next generation. Um, you could say inculcating bad habits, but you could also say inuring them to the process of, of, of what goes on and passing on some of these skills. Um, there is a move more broadly in the world to let children run everything because maybe they have good ideas because they're young and maybe that would be good for ratings. But surely that's not a good idea for, A, a responsible newspaper where you need to vet people and bring them up, and B, local newspapers which are on their asses anyway, to be perfectly honest, and in a time when local news is... I think, increasingly important. What's your read on this? No, exactly right. And I think the, the regional picture is particularly depressing. Uh, you mentioned it explicitly there. Carlotta alluded to it. A lot of these quite celebrated, you know, historic titles won't have a, an office in their you know, on, on their patch, on their beat anymore. And, you know, if you are working on a newspaper in, you know, I don't know, Cambridgeshire, and you have to have a meeting, you have to go to London, it just changes all of those dynamics. Carlos is exactly right. And it's not just unique to journalism. I think virtually any creative industry relies on a certain serendipity of, yeah, accidental meetings, people overhearing, uh, reading something else that somebody, you know, a memo that somebody's written and you, you can actually spitball and get the idea moving in a different and better direction. And, and the other facet of it is not just in terms of learning the craft, which, which Carlos was talking about, or, or being inculcated with bad ideas, as you sort of jokingly <laughs> referred to it, Josh, but it's the idea of the the traditional um the not just the traditional rigor of the editor's red pen which i'm a big fan of but it's also the human experience of like development in a job um even if that's a bit of office politics like how do you navigate successfully through a corporation to do the best for it and yourself these are human skills and the younger generation of people are not going to get that exposure and and you're you're robbing them of an opportunity, something critical, which will help their professional and personal advancement. And I've spoken on this program before about what you lose, what we've already lost just in the last year in the cities, because people haven't been able to mix together, drink in culture, meet other people, have relationships with people. And if that starts to bleed into the workplace, where a lot of management level people, you know, in a reach are saying, well, look, I'm very happy on my, you know, estate i can work in my you know summer house in the garden what about all of the tyros who need to be around other people to to, to get places and i think anything that relies on sparks of creativity this will surely strike a chord with anyone listening who does anything creative you've got to get together and you've got to really get together you you cannot just do it through the portal of a screen and carlotta you're our producer today so you can't tell me off for running a little <laughs> bit long um, i have something to say to what tom said but i also want to throw into the thought 
the, the, the idea of presence. Uh, we've all been very isolated in a time of opening up. Hopefully we will all get to see things, go out there. But how important and what kind of message do you think this sends for the idea of journalists turning up, being on the ground, being in places rather than just sitting at their desk at home in their kitchen? I don't think it sends a really good message, if I'm honest, because basically you're saying you don't need, really need to leave, leave the house to do your job when we well know that, you know, the more interesting stories and the most interesting stories you find sometimes is when you're accidentally reporting another story and you come across something else exactly because you leave the house. And just to add to a point that Tom was making there, what worries me as well about more junior staff and the fact that these decisions are made, you know, by management Junior staff are the ones often, you know, not if not often, always in house shares, smaller spaces with no access to a garden. It's very different to make the decision that working from home suits you if one is your second home or two, you can, you have a, even a balcony and it's where you live with your family. Then if you are, you know, in a big city with four strangers or four friends um, where the only communal space you have is a kitchen, it's a very different reality. And the fact that in this um, uh, decision that Reach has made, one of the things they said kind of show how, oh, after it's not that bad, was I made a point of saying, oh, don't worry, pre-organized social activities will still happen to ensure colleagues still see each other. What about just the office so they can see each other? It, I think imposing a social activity between colleagues can even be worse <laughs> than, than that. Yeah, I think trying to explain it shows reach overreaching a little bit there with the reasoning. Uh, but it's time to quickly move on to our letter from New York City. This week, our correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, if you've heard the name before, takes a closer look at New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's management style. Take it away, Henry. Every subway rider's worst nightmare, a massive jolt, what sounds like an explosion. For unknown reasons, the train's emergency brakes activated. Two cars derailed, crashing into the subway wall. The latest episode in what New York's governor has warned could be a summer of hell for commuters. In the summer of 2017, New York's Metropolitan Transit Authority, or MTA, was not in good shape. Only 65% of weekday trains reached their destinations on time. There were several track fires and overcrowding incidents. After a train derailed at 125th Street, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo signed an executive order declaring a state of emergency for the subway system. One of the consequences of this was that in 2018, the MTA hired a new president to be head of its subsidiary, the New York City Transit Authority. He was called Andy Byford. Byford is a leading figure in public transit. By the time he came to New York, he had already won plaudits for his work on the transit systems in London, New South Wales and Toronto. Byford drew up a plan to improve New York's transit called Fast Forward. I'm Andy Byford, and I'm the president of MTA New York City Transit. We know the transit system today isn't what it should be. It's not what a world-class city like New York deserves. Our plan is called Fast Forward. We're going to transform the subway. We're going to reimagine the bus network. We're going to accelerate accessibility. And we're going to engage and empower our employees to provide outstanding customer service. Because New York deserves world class. He would transit. ride the subway every day wearing a name tag and talk with commuters. He would pick up litter himself. He would interact with staff at all levels. It soon won him the admiration of MTA staff in particular and New Yorkers in general. 
they began to call him Train Daddy. But by February of 2020, Byford was out. He had clashed with the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who, Byford said, had made his job intolerable. Here's Byford in a post-resignation interview with CBS journalist Marsha Kramer. Today we're getting right to the point in our exclusive interview with the train daddy himself, former New York City Transit... I needed, I would speak in the past now, I needed to be left to uh, run the system. That's how I operate best. Tell me what the outputs are, I will, I will deliver the inputs. I needed to be left to do what I knew needed to be done, and I found myself um, being um, undermined, if I'm honest. There was a number of occasions where, uh, and, and one of them pretty much was the last straw, when I found out that um, a whole uh, swathe of uh, senior MTA executives, a lot of the new chiefs, had gone to... Uh, to, to a, a meeting at the governor's office, and, and ultimately it was then described as a briefing. But um, you know, and you weren't there. Uh, no one from New York City Transit was there, and specific direction was being given about uh, re-signalling and about other aspects of running which the were your job. service, which absolutely was uh, was my job. Why am I talking about Andy Byford now, over a year since his resignation? It's because I think his story is germane to two of the biggest interconnected political questions in New York right now. First, the future of the MTA. Second, Andrew Cuomo's management style. Ridership on New York's subway system is down a staggering 68% from a year ago. This massive drop led to a revenue crisis that was stemmed only by President Biden's stimulus package the stimulus package has allocated 30.5 billion US dollars to transit agencies, the largest single injection of federal aid public transportation has ever received. How effectively that money is spent in New York will depend a lot on who's at the top of the MTA. Byford was replaced by Sarah Feinberg. Feinberg is a longtime intimate of Governor Cuomo. Before she took up her current role, she held a position on the MTA board to which she was appointed by Cuomo. Even if Feinberg has the competence to make sure that the money is spent effectively, she's not really the boss of the MTA. That's Andrew Cuomo himself, who, as Andy Byford found out, takes a special interest in the day-to-day -day operation of the agency. And by all accounts, he doesn't approach this task with a cool head. The City, an investigative journalism website covering New York, interviewed multiple sources who used words like vindictive, mean, unreasonable and intrusive to describe how Cuomo has operated at the MTA. It reported that transit officials are regularly berated by him and his staff during phone calls and meetings, and one former MTA board member described Cuomo's tactics as brutish. This brings me on to the question of Cuomo's management style. The governor is mired in overlapping scandals at the minute. These range from accusations of sexual harassment to the revelation that his administration underreported nursing home deaths in the state over the course of the pandemic. There are also accusations that he bullied other politicians and that aside from the specific sexual harassment claims, his office has been a toxic environment for women to work in. 
What all these scandals have in common is that they involved a bullying style of politics and personnel management that Cuomo learned as a young politician, working as a campaign manager for his father, former New York governor Mario Cuomo. New York State lawmakers have opened an impeachment inquiry into Governor Cuomo. So far, he's refusing to step down. He's apparently obsessed with matching the three full terms his father served as governor. Ideally, he'd like to surpass it. The New York Times has reported that at his third inaugural address, the one in which he equaled his father, Andrew wore a pair of Mario's shoes. Whatever the future holds in store for Andrew Cuomo, one thing's clear. His daddy issues didn't end with Train Daddy. And that was Henry Rees Sheridan reporting from New York City about something or another. And the less said about it, the better. And we'll be zipping swiftly on. We've probably got time for another quick reverie, folks. So we thought we'd take a somnolent stride into World Sleep Day, which apparently is today, or more specifically, this evening. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco has the story. How did you sleep last night? Today is World Sleep Day. A moment to recognize how a year of homeworking and distancing has upset sleeping patterns. One in four UK citizens reported insomnia in 2020, and even higher levels have been reported from countries like Greece and Italy. Scientific research indicates the sleep-deprived find it harder to concentrate, are slower to react, and their metabolism is negatively affected. But all is not lost. The secret to a good night's sleep is finding a routine that relaxes you. Winder Tong, sleep coach for the London health supplement shop Anatome, tells the Monocle Minute. Tong's employer sells special oils to help establish a routine through scent. We like the frankincense. Taking time to read or write in a journal can also help release you from daily stresses. The most important thing is setting up a series of things you associate with sleep, Tom says. Your body will do the rest. And that soporific little screed came from Fernando Augusto Pacheco. That was like getting into Tom Edwards' big, luscious, claw-footed bath in his uh, weird bond lair in North London or wherever it is you live, isn't it? Well, that was so relaxing to very, listen to. Re- very, very relaxing. I was drifting away. I actually missed the last few things he said. I was in a reverie. You were, you were. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, are we getting better at talking about the idea of rest uh, and finding a bit of a better balance between work and time on our screens, or has the pandemic forced us into the fearful glint of backlit screens all the more? Well, I, I think it was a bit of both initially. What I do, what really I find funny is that we, strangely, inadvertently, train ourselves out of a lot of those habits. As Fernando was describing that, I was thinking of our colleague Tom Reynolds, who's just returned to work, and he's got a what, three-week-old baby. It's all about routines. It's about, you know, bath time and bedtime and the lighting and the white noise and the clothes you wear. And you do all of these things and to teach babies. Most babies need to kind of learn how to sleep. And they get there, in in the case of my two, at great pain to their parents. It's a hard-won victory. And then you quickly let all of that unravel once they get a bit older with, yeah, blue screens, with... Not not that not that routine, not giving your body the help it needs to set up these cues. So actually... I think that we do have the facility to sleep well. And it is a question, as, as Faye says there, about finding these kind of tri- trigger points. And some of them are pretty obvious. Uh, decluttering, 
your the place where you sleep and decluttering your brain of these these warring uh, attention grabbers. Um, I, I do try and avoid the screen for at least you know kind of half an hour. It's probably not enough. Um, reading is incredibly potent and sets the brain at a different sort of tra- trajectory. Um, I don't know about other things. What did he mention oils and smells? I'll give it a bash. But to be honest. I, you know, if I'm just if I have a good book just for twenty minutes, that tends to send me off to the land of nod fairly relaxed in a fairly relaxed way. And that was Tom Edwards of Monocle Twenty Four talking about oiling up and giving it a bash. <laughs> um, very unusual. Behave yourself, Josh. Carlotta, are you getting enough sleep? And do you have any kip tips to share? Well, first I just want to say how ironic it is that Fernando presented that piece. He's famously the person that goes to bed the latest in our office. He'd be like, oh, I had a, an early one, and it's like he went to bed at 1 or 2 a.m. That's Fernando. So he, drinks I just... a, he drinks a lot of Red Bull as well, doesn't <laughs> exactly. he? He's the only labourer I know, on, uh, or the only person who I know who's not a labourer who drinks four <laughs> cans of Red Bull. So th- that's, that's point number one. Second, I think uh, over the past year, I went from being really good at, you know, managing the time I went to bed. As Tom just said, find a routine, you know, getting enough sleep. And ha- I think that has all unraveled in the past six months. Um, I, I wanted to say, like, in the beginning of life in lockdown, that was one of my biggest conquer- conquests was, like, to be able to finally fall asleep. And now I just fo- fell into the strap of, you know, bedtime uh, procrastination that, you know, you feel like you don't want your free time to end. So you just kind of refuse to go to sleep and you just stay awake for no particular reason and the next day you wake up like oh I'm not going to do this and I think it just keeps going and going um, so maybe I'll just need to follow Fernando's advice maybe we need to go out and buy some candles and you know figure this out have a nice hot bath what about you Fennett though what would you recommend presumably you have a four or five course venison supper of an evening and that knocks you out is that the secret <laughs> um, I tend not to drink during the week because I think alcohol actually um, is delicious and amazing and I love it but um, I think it disrupts my sleep a little bit I find myself waking up in the night with a little bit of a circadian flip um, if I drink during the week. Stand back, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but other than, other than that, I'm generally generally and genuinely exhausted at the end of every day. And all right, all right, you work harder than us. No, but, but my partner well, works for the, the NHS message. and she gets up super early in the morning and then I hear about her extremely tough day doing actual things of consequence and then I, I feel like I can't say I'm too tired. <laughs> Very good. I hope she's not listening. (laughs) I can't say I'm too tired. I can't pretend that my day has been harder than hers. Sadly, on that personal revelation, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you to our guests today, Tom Edwards and Carlotta Ribello. Carlotta, talented soul that she has also produced today's show, uh, so thank you for that. Our studio manager was Louis Allen. I'm Josh Fennett in London. The late edition is back at the same time on Monday. But until then, have a great weekend and maybe a hot bath. (laughs) 